for 35 weeks, I've told people, well, it's actually been longer than that, but for 35 sermons, I've told people, I hope Jesus comes back before we finish. So I decided to preach for a really long time today. Um, no, just kidding. Well, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are uh, finishing a series that we've been in for about, uh, well, over half a year, and it's been an incredible journey. And um, uh, if you're new, I would love to meet you. I'll be out in the lobby after the service. Uh, we're just a group of people who love Jesus and uh, are learning each week how to surrender more so that he can change us more. And that's really kind of the key. And, and I was thinking uh, this last week, um, how many of you like new things? I mean, new things. I, mean, I, I love new things. I just, I don't care what they are. They don't even have to be mine. I don't, I, mean, I don't need it. I don't even have to know what they do. I love shiny knobs, and I love the, the way things that are new are just like new, and they're, they're beautiful, and it could be anything, and, and they're shiny, and they're not messed up, and they don't need to be repaired, and you know, my wife is one of those people where she would want to buy an old house and restore it. I'm like, why? You can get one that's brand spanking new. You could get one where everything that you see, you did. Why in the world would you want something that's old, new and improved. Those are cool. Gadgets, I love new technology, new anything. It's just me. You gotta love new, right? I think we love new because God loves new. He wanted our experience to be one of constant wonder, constant amazement, and thus constant worship of what God does. I mean, just look around creation. Every year, there's a cycle of new. Every day, God blesses us with things that are new. God shows us each day how much he loves us by making things new. Everything he touches brings newness, growth, nurtures, exudes creativity, develops, improves, exceeds our expectations, replicates. If God is involved in it, it's changing always more exciting than before, full of wonder and full of life. But then there's death and decay and aging, and that's not part of God's original design. Those are on us. Those are the results of what we've done. God, God does new. Things impacted by sin die. They fail to grow. They stop developing. They stop improving, they start decaying, they, they wear out. Truth is, we brought a lot into this world that doesn't reveal God's character. We live in a very fallen world. Yet despite the reality of our world, God makes promises throughout the scriptures. He promises to restore what's been lost and to make us a new creation. We just sang about it, you make me new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He promises us that each day he'll show us his love and pour out his new mercies on us. Lamentations 3, 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
He promises us to change us by renewing our minds. Romans 12, 1. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be renewed by the renewal of your mind. He promises to put off our old manner of life. Ephesians 4, 20. But this is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He promises to restore our health and spirit and the damages of sin, giving us a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put it within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When you think about it, almost as soon as man turned away from God and ruined our relationship because of sin, God began making promises and plans to restore all the damage we've done to overcome the consequences of our sins. Not immediately, not necessarily even during our lifetime, but one day everything, everything tainted by sin will be made new. Not improved, not repaired, not fixed. No, destroyed and made completely new. If sin causes something to age, decay, and die, God has a plan to remove it and make it new. The entire story of the Bible is about God's promise and plan to save us from every aspect and consequence of our sins. We started this series 34 sermons ago. <clears throat> yeah. If you remember, I repeatedly said, you can't understand Revelation if you haven't read the other books of the Bible that nothing really new is introduced in the book. It's just revealed in a new way. I've spoken over and over about how this book, this collection of ancient transcripts from beginning to end tell a complete narrative story, threads that run from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we're gonna look at one today. The story of God that we call the Bible is about real people who lived in real places and came through real history. The Bible in its finished and final form, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And it's a unified work of literature without contradiction. It's incredible. Between the first words of Genesis and the last words of Revelation, there's a linear story of, from God throughout the story. The main character is God, the conflict is sin, and the theme is redemption. The Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. We didn't make that claim about it. God made that claim in it. He said, these are my words. This is the holy Bible. Why is it holy? Because it's from God. These aren't human words. They're straight from God. You can't accept the text without accepting that that is in the text. He said this book is uniquely special and that he literally breathed it into existence. You may not believe that to be true, 
But you can't engage the text in an honest way without accepting that claim as being part of the text. He says it's his book. He wrote it. It's holy. It's from God. And it tells us everything we need to know to have our faith. But Satan hates the word of God. Particularly, Satan hates Genesis and Revelation. In the book of Genesis, Satan's doom is prophesied. In the book of Revelation, it becomes a reality. In Genesis, we see the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, we see the creation of new heavens and new earth without Satan. In Genesis, we see the first Adam reigning on earth. In Revelation, we see Jesus, the last Adam, reigning in glory. In Genesis, we see an earthly bride brought to the first Adam. In Revelation, we see a heavenly bride of believers brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis, we see the beginning of death and the curse. In Revelation, the Savior brings us to a state where there's no more death and no more curse. In the book of Genesis, man is driven from God in sin. In the book of Revelation, we see God's face in its true glory. In Genesis, Satan appears for the first time. And thank God, in Revelation, he appears for the last. But now we're near the end of this book. And guess what? We have to go back to Genesis to understand what this book is about. The threads of this book run forward and backwards. You can't understand Revelation until you understand Genesis, and you can't understand Genesis until you've looked at Revelation. It's a complete story. Genesis 2.8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were two trees in the garden, two trees that were identified, not just in the garden, but in the very center of the garden. Remember, no word in the Bible is wasted. Why were these two trees in the center or middle of the garden? Well, the garden represented everything great about God. It's life-giving, it's in balance, it's beyond our imagination, it's paradise. Everything is new, nothing decay, and the garden represents life and life given by God. In the middle of the garden, there's the tree of life. It should be there. Everything in the garden is about God. God is about life, and this tree represents God's plan that he would be with man forever, and this tree brings with it eternal life. Whoever eats from this tree has eternal life, and anybody with eternal life can eat from this tree. There's no command in the Bible not to eat from the tree of life. But if you eat from the tree of life as a sinner, then you're doomed. We don't have to worry about that. Nobody there even knows what sin is. They don't have the knowledge. They're not even aware there is sin. They, they don't know. But then God speaks, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. 
Every tree in the garden, all of it good for food. Just don't eat that one. That seems odd, doesn't it? And kind of petty, right? I mean, what if I don't like apples? What if I want to eat the pear tree? What, what, what? I mean, that just seems kind of petty. Why would God do that? How could God call this paradise and put a forbidden tree and Satan as a snake there to tempt us? That's not fair. How can he say everything is good when those things are there? Why, why, not, why even put the tree there? Well, the tree's necessary. Why? Because God created us so that we would love him, have a relationship with him. You can't have love without the choice not to love. I mean, if I'm created as a robot that just loves something, I didn't choose that. I have no, I have no option. See, God wanted to create a group of people who have free will, who have easy access to a relative challenge, and who choose him. The tree has to be there. The problem was we didn't have to choose it. The tree of life, spiritual, physical life, and a tree of knowledge, both in the center of this garden. They represent a central choice that each of us have. It would foreshadow what's to come. It would reveal the choice we'd have to make, and God wanted us to choose him even if there was another alternative that looked good to us. That's what love is. I'm choosing you above all others. I'm choosing your way no matter what I see, no matter how shiny it is, no matter how attractive it is. I'm choosing to follow God. That's love. Well, I think we know the rest of the story. So these two, two trees in the garden really tell the story of man's relationship with God. Most know about the tree Adam and Eve ate from, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but the other tree is a tree of life. They were free to eat from that one, at least before the fall. But now they have knowledge of good and evil. Now they're aware of Satan. They're aware of their potential to be their own God, to chase their own dreams, to reject God in heaven, and to try to do life on their own. In their fallen state, though, had they gone over and eaten from the tree of life, they'd have been doomed forever. So God took care of it. Even as he kicks them out of the garden, he's still trying to protect them from themselves. And this trend will continue throughout the next books of the Bible. Genesis 3, 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, you got to understand, that wasn't God's plan. He wanted us to live in a place where we didn't even where evil is. You know where you see that today? As a parent, do you remember trying to protect your preschooler from things that are on the news and around? You just kind of like, okay, if they don't know about it, they're going to be okay. They're not ready to hear that. Well, the original design was, yeah, there's evil and God's in charge of it, but he loves us, he's overcome it, and it'll never bother us until we choose evil over him. Lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree alive and eat forever, live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
and, the east of the, <clears throat> and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way back to the tree of life. He's like, look, whatever happens, you can't come back here and eat from that tree. Because if you do, you're lost forever and so is everybody else. You can't stay in the garden, but I'm going to protect you from coming back. God drove them out of paradise to protect them. But in order to get man back to that tree, to be able to have eternal life, God has to make everything new. Nothing tainted by sin can share in the tree of life. And that tree represents heaven. If we're not completely new, completely new creations, we can't be in heaven with God. These two trees represent our fallen nature and our journey with God to get back to him despite our nature. So if you think about it, the whole story of the Bible is about getting fallen man back to the tree in a spiritual condition where we can once again eat from it for all of eternity. In other words, we need to belong in heaven. We need to be people who've been changed and made new to where we are sinless, we are holy, we're able to eat from the tree of life, we're able to be in the presence of God, and we don't have to worry about our sin or the punishment. We need God's holiness. And the only way we can get it is by being born again and becoming a completely new person. But notice God isn't a repairman. He doesn't take things that are broken and fix them. He doesn't repair them, doesn't improve them, doesn't spruce them up a bit. No, God destroys the old every time, destroys the old, and we've seen that through Revelation. He creates new. God is in the business of making all things new. He always removes the old before he brings in the new. Why? Because everything we've ever experienced and seen on this earth is tainted in some way by the effect of sin of man. Everything you've ever seen. God's not going to repair things. He's going to restore through renewal. Anything that's tainted by sin has to be destroyed. Something new, something holy, something from God has to replace it. That's exactly what we've been studying as we come to the close of Revelation. Everything tainted by sin is being destroyed and renewed by God. Isaiah 42, 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Before new things happen, I will reveal them to you. It'll be a revelation. In our series on Revelation, we've seen God systematically restore everything that sin took away from us. Each trumpet, each seal, each bowl began to destroy and eliminate a part of the world that was tainted by sin. The entire book of Revelation is about the way God goes about cleansing the world of the consequences of sin, separating evil from good, dividing everyone and everything into two groups. We left off last time learning about the millennial kingdom, how the earth is actually going to be reshaped by judgments. Better, but not yet new. There are still tainted things in the millennial kingdom. 
The millennial king is much better. Jesus is king. It's on earth. It's been reshaped. Satan's bound, but he's only bound for a thousand years. And we're told that when he comes out, many, many will join Satan in a final rebellion. The millennial kingdom is not heaven. We're still on earth. We're still on this earth. It's reshaped. It's better than it was before. We will have our resurrection bodies. We will be overseeing things there. But the truth is there's a whole population of people who survive the tribulation, enter the millennial kingdom as humans, replicate, and will eventually die. And so the challenge here is we have to begin to understand when does God make everything new? This millennial kingdom, although the picture says you're here and you are today, that's where we are in the timeline, but from a series standpoint, we're over here after the final judgment. We're now talking about eternity or heaven. The millennial kingdom of a thousand years is coming to a close. The throne judgment is about to be completed. We talked about that last time. Everyone that's still alive at this point has been completely reborn spiritually. And everybody is now a believer with redeemed bodies. There's nobody there that doesn't believe. The last rebellion from those who maintain their sinful state has been eliminated. The false trinity, the Satan, Antichrist, false prophet have been cast into the lake of fire forever. Those who reject Jesus have been eternally sent away from him to hell. At the end of the millennial kingdom, all things impacted by sin will be destroyed. Everything after that will be new. When is sin finally going and everything made new forever? At the end of the millennial kingdom. At that time, we will see a brand spanking new eternal heaven and earth. You've got to love new. At that point, all mankind will be new. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, martyrs, all those who believe during the millennial kingdom, now new spiritual beings with new resurrected bodies. At this point, after the millennial kingdom's over, everybody, everything is new. It's a fulfillment of promise given through Isaiah years ago. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The new heaven and the new earth are created at the end of the millennial kingdom. Because nothing holy can be made from something that is tainted by sin. The old has to be destroyed so the new can come. Also notice the last verse there says, former things will not be remembered. Hmm. That's an important answer to some of the questions a few of you have emailed to me. The question is, what are we going to remember about earth and heaven? The answer, according to Isaiah, is nothing. You say, well, wait a minute. We won't know anything, not in heaven, but you will during the millennial kingdom. During those thousand years on earth, you will very well remember everything that happened. You see, we're not going to spend eternity in regret for our sins. God's not only going to remove them, pay for them, cleanse us of them, and forget them, but so are we. When we're created new, our sins don't hound us anymore. When the millennial kingdom ends and heaven begins, we have no recollection of what's happening here. Not my words, Isaiah is from God. 
So the millennial kingdom has ended. God has destroyed all evidence and consequence of sin. All mankind is new, spiritually reborn, resurrected bodies, pure substrate for a holy creation from God. And then look what John sees next. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. <clears throat> Revelation 21, we read last week, or last time. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, now that sin is gone, God is with us. Notice something here. It says the dwelling place of God is with man. Don't miss this. He didn't say the dwelling place of man is with God. In a sinful world, the best we could hope for because of God's holiness and our sinfulness is that somehow we could connect with God through the Spirit, but God cannot permanently dwell on earth with us until the sin issue is resolved. The best we could hope for is to be reborn and to have the Spirit of God and to allow to be taken into his presence because of Jesus. But God here is saying something new. God and man are now fully Reunited. There's no sin separation. There's no memory of sin. God and man are fully reunited, and it feels so good. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, sin also brought, God says, death, and it will be no more. Throughout the millennial kingdom, the people who went into the kingdom as humans eventually die. Not anymore. Once we enter into eternity, once we enter into heaven, no death. Everything being restored, sort of like it was for Adam and Eve before the fall. But not exactly. You see, we will walk with God. We'll not die, we'll not mourn, we'll no longer shed tears of sorrow. We'll no longer feel pain. It'll be like it was for Adam and Eve before the fall. But God says, I'm not restoring you back to the garden. I'm not taking you back to life as it was. All former things have passed away. I'm doing something new, something totally new, something that's never been done before, something you've never seen before something that was foreshadowed by the Garden of Eden, but now something much, much greater. Revelation 21, 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm making all things new. Not some, not a few. Everything you've ever seen is going to be destroyed. Saturn, Pluto, stars, the galaxies, Grand Canyon, Mount Rush, whatever it is, done. We'll watch it. It's going to happen. We will witness it. Everything destroyed. 
Everything that you experience from this point forward, God says, will be new. I, I think heaven is going to be a place where we're just constantly wowed by the newness of God. We're going to see things that just blow away what we've seen in nature here. We're going to see hearts of people that are so pure, so loving, and so holy that relationships are going to be at such a deeper level. We're going to bask in the light of Christ. Once the millennium ends, everything from that point forward is new. So what does perfect earth look like? Well, then came out of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. Why are the gates not shut? There's no war. There's no threat. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So God brings us a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new way of being in his presence, not in a temple. The way for us everywhere we go, the gates to the city will be open. Everyone is welcome, but only the redeemed will be in eternity. Only those who are holy, all are righteous, all are holy in Christ. All can dwell in its midst and all are in the Lamb's book of life. God has made everything new. Everything, just like he promised. So now the tree of life is no longer guarded. At this point, there's no need for cherubims or flaming swords. Come, Jesus says, eat and drink. The tree of life is open to you. Your sin has been corrected. We've made you a new person. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. There it is. It started in Revelation as an earthly representation of a heavenly thing. And here it is, right there in Revelation. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night there'll be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. There's no darkness in this place. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You notice it says the leaves are for the healing of nations. I mean, I thought everything was perfect. But what, what are they healing? Well, why would the nations need to be healed? If there's no conflict. Well, the problem is with the word healing. The original actually means therapeutic or life-sustaining. It's almost like these leaves, a better translation, I think, would be they're supernatural vitamins. It's for the growth. It's for health. 
Life in heaven will be fully energized, rich, and exciting. A lot of people say, hey, when we get to heaven, are we just going to sing around, play harps, and sing music? You know, there's a reason I wasn't on the worship team here. But let me tell you, your voice will be new too. But the answer is no. You were created by a loving God who uniquely wired you to worship him in certain ways, using your skills, your talents, and your treasures. And when you get to heaven, there'll be no hindrances and you'll be fully engaged in what you're created to become. And you'll be in the light of God and everything will be great. Heaven is open and all are home. And then he says, come and eat from the tree of life. Drink from the water of life. You, you're new, you're holy, and you're home. These are all real events on our calendar in the future. Those who believe, we're going to eat and drink from that tree. I mean, it's not some fictitious tree. We're actually going to do it. I hope we're all there to look at each other. Look, we're eating from the tree of life. Everything is restored. We're all new. It has no calories. Then look at the promise. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon, he says. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Can drink from the fountain of God. And it says, without price. How crazy is that? We can drink freely from the river of life and eat from the tree of life, and it costs us nothing. That doesn't mean it didn't have a cost. Look at what Jesus had to do to undo everything we've done. Read the Bible. The cost was heavy. He knows the price he paid so we could drink freely. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel. Blessed is the ones who keep the prophecy. You see, John has taken us in this book through an amazing amazing sweep of future history all the way to the eternal state of heaven. The devastating judgments of the tribulation will have been carried out. The memory will remain only in the torment of the damned. The Lord Jesus will have returned in blazing glory, executed his enemies, and reigned on earth for a thousand years. All rebels, both angels and humans, have been sentenced to their final eternal punishment in the lake of fire. The present universe will have been uncreated and a new eternal new heaven and new earth created in which the king of kings will be reigning with his father. Holy angels and the redeemed of all ages will be dwelling in eternal bliss with him in this new creation, particularly in heaven's capital city, Jerusalem. From his throne in the center of the majestic city, the brilliant blazing glory of God will radiate throughout the recreated universe. Absolute and unchanging holiness will characterize every person who dwells in this universal eternal kingdom. 
They will constantly praise and worship and serve him throughout eternity in an environment of peace, perfect peace, joy, and fulfillment. One day, you and I, with millions of other now perfect new creations, will stand in perfect new Jerusalem in a perfect new heaven and earth, and we will discover what the fruit from the tree of life tastes like and the refreshment that comes from the water of life that Jesus says supports our soul. We'll have no memory of sin, fallen earth, previous fallen state, no guilt, no shame. We'll finally be home. That's God's revelation to us. That's what this book is about. Full promise from beginning to end. He told us that all we needed to know about our future, if you need to know something about our future, he has revealed it. Otherwise, you don't need to know. At the very end of Revelation, there's nothing to add. God has laid out his perfect plan for our perfect future, and that's why he gave us the stern warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share, and there it is, the tree of life and all the holy city which are described in this book. You want to avoid eating from the tree of life? You want to avoid getting to heaven? You want to avoid becoming new? Add something to this book. Take something away from this book. Say you have a new revelation like the Mormons, Muslims, and others. Just go ahead. The warning is here for a reason. God says, look, I've revealed everything. There's no reason to add anything or take anything away. And then he says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Why the warning? He doesn't do that in any other book because the revelation is perfect. About himself. You and I don't need to know anything else. Who are we to add to the Word of God? Who are we to edit and delete from the Word of God? This book reveals the very character and nature of God, it reveals our problem, his solution, and his promise. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right and the holy be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Believers are told and called to guard and protect the book of Revelation. It must be defended against detractors who deny its relevance, against critics who deny its accuracy and authority, as well as against confused interpreters who obscure its meaning. We're to protect the words of this book. What does it mean then to heed the book of Revelation? It calls on believers to desire heaven, to desire holiness, to desire to see Christ vindicated and triumphant over his enemies, to desire 
to see the end of the curse, to desire to see the glories of Christ's earthly kingdom and new heaven and new earth. You see, after reading Revelation, Christians should love Christ so much more, long to see him finally vindicated in his glory, live in the light of that reality that on one day we will see him full in his glory. It, it drives us to disconnect from the perishing world system that we live in. Pursue heavenly realities every day while we're here. Seek to be made more like Christ. Hope for the resurrection bodies and anticipate our eternal rewards. We are to live here in light of revelation with our eyes on the future. Should also understand the fearful judgment that awaits non-Christians and call those sinners to repent, to turn back to God before it's too late. See, God doesn't command us to read Revelation just to satisfy our curiosity about the future. He didn't give us Revelation so that we could have arguments about chronological order, pre and post-millennial. All that. he, That's not why he gave us Revelation. He, he didn't give us Revelation so we could try to predict world events and where they fit in. He didn't give us Revelation so we could argue about who the Antichrist may be. God inspired Revelation for one purpose and one purpose only to reveal the glory of his son and call believers to live godly, obedient lives in the light of his soon return. The purpose of Revelation is not to provide us with entertainment, but to provide motivation for godly living. I said at the beginning of this series, it's called Revelation, not Revelations. There's only one revelation, and that's Jesus Christ. That's who's being revealed. You want to know who he is, why he's here, what he's doing, where we're going, and what's going to happen? Here's Jesus. This is the revelation. So by the time we enter eternity, there's nothing left to be revealed. The instructions are clear. Our future is known, and it's known regardless of what we think about it. These events will happen, and everyone alive at the time will experience them. Everything revealed is as good as done. But there's a final revelation, one that comes from studying this book. You see, if you just read the book, you don't see it. But if you study it, if you hear it, if you embrace it, there's a promise from God that we started with 34 weeks ago. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it for the time is near. When you study this book, when you really hear and understand it, when you dive deep into it and you keep in your heart what is revealed, you find the revelation is Jesus himself. And this book reveals who he is. And when you see Jesus clearly, you find that your heart is revealed as well. There's nothing like standing in the presence of holy to see where your heart is how desperately you need him as a savior. The scriptures tell us that when Christ is lifted up, all men are drawn. And the book of Revelation reveals the holiness of Jesus in its full and total revelation. You see, knowing God's plan makes us long for home, long to be with him in heaven, long to be in a place that's pure and holy, long to live without any memory of the way we've offended God or other people, longing to live with others who have a pure heart. Can you imagine 
being with somebody and you know their motives are absolutely pure, that they want the absolute very best for you, that they can't even think of something. They can't even, it's not even in their brain to manipulate you or to lie to you or to, to judge you or, or, or to compare, none of that. Everybody has pure motives. Everybody in pure love for one another, longing to bask in the light of his glory, longing for everything that's been tainted by sin, including ourselves, to be destroyed and to see everything completely new. Thus, when you realize that, the last verse naturally flows. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. You've got to love new. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you <clears throat> never gave up on us. It would have been easy to destroy us and start over. But you didn't. You made commitments to us and you kept them, every one of them. You went to great detail to rid the world of the consequence of what we did. It started with Jesus on the cross paying the price for our death, but it continued throughout Revelation with you systematically restoring, removing, destroying, and building new. God, it takes incredible love to do that. So I thank you for that. I thank you that you showed us what our future looks like. I thank you that you showed us how much you love us. But God, the reality is there are people that don't know you. This is not their future. As true as this is, so is the alternative. God, part of study and revelation makes us long for the people we know who have no idea or who have a very clear idea and have rejected you. So God, it should move our hearts to reach out to them, not in judgment, but in love. I can't imagine heaven if you're not there. God, help us to begin those conversations. Help us to evaluate ourselves. But God, don't let us hold on to the old stuff that's here. Put our sights on the new that's to come. Help us live our life on earth in that reality. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.